paradox of choice. I, I mean, I get how it, how having so many options prevents you from making a decision. I get why Steve Jobs always wore black, why people like Barack Obama always wore a charcoal suit, except the one time he wore a tan suit. Um, it's tan just easier look, to though. not think. What? Mm -hmm. I said the tan suit looked fire. The tan suit was fire. People were just hating because they saw a black man in a tan suit. Let's be honest. All right, you ready? Give me one second. I'm just like kind of clearing things out over here. What up, what up, what up? Welcome in another episode. Jason Spells in New York City. Brandon Edler in LA. Let's see if you can do it another week in a row. What is this? What you heard. Last week was better. Last week was better, but I, I appreciate it. I do. Uh, I got I got something for you this week, bro. I'm gonna start it off asking: Are you ready to change your opinion? Change my what? Your opinion. Okay. A couple of weeks ago, you said the Phoenix Suns were, if I recall, not going to stay in the top of the Western Conference standings and going to lose in the first round. Right now, as we take this, on May the 9th, they are one and a half games out of first place in the West, solidly in second, playing their ass off. Are you going to change it, or are you still saying they trash? I mean, I just feel like they really haven't been tested as a team. They've never really done anything. I get Chris Paul's over there having an MVP caliber season. I get Booker is, you know, a really tough guy to stop one-on-one, -on -one, but look at who they would have to play in some of those playing games. Like they have a good chance where they might end up having to play the Lakers in the first round. It's a good possibility. They could get knocked out of the first round. I'm just saying they're probably one of the weakest, like top one, two, three seeds, whatever coming out of the West in a long time for a conference. That's traditionally been pretty strong. And you know, their finals representation. Well, man, the Suns aren't making it to the finals. I'm not going that far. Right. But right. I'll put some respect on them to be second in the West, which is still the best conference in the NBA. They are ahead of the Clippers. They're what? I mean, they're seven and three in their last 10. So they're, they're playing good ball as the season comes to an end because we are like a week and a half away from the playing tournament starting mm -hmm. and potential, potential foes could be the Grizzlies warriors. Um, Lakers trailblazers. I'm not putting any respect on the Spurs because they're not going to get that far. Um, so all those teams you just mentioned, though, other than the Grizzlies, I think have no problem. The Warriors taking they're not Phoenix gonna, I mean, out. Phoenix beat the Warriors. Come on up. I mean, what? Steph's going to have to. Steph's going to have to drop fifty every game in a series for the Warriors. And, and he possibly could do it. Like, I mean, I don't think it's that far fetched. Is all I'm saying. It. I could see Phoenix being a team who hasn't been tested in the playoffs self-combusting a little bit I, that's all i'm saying is look if they if they end up going to the second or third round and being more respectable than i'm giving them credit for i wouldn't be completely shocked by that but i think everybody's kind of like overlooking the fact that the west like a lot of teams they're veteran loaded like you know like the clippers the lakers stuff like that they've said time and time again like we're gonna take care of our stars first and foremost before we worry about competing for a seat in the playoffs and I think that that's shown to be very true over the last few years. So it's like, I'm just not getting that excited about a regular season. That's cute and all, but what are you going to do in the playoffs? I've never seen Devin Booker do anything in the playoffs. Chris except Paul the bubble, except the it. bubble last year, except the but bubble. The bubble's, the, the, bubble, the bubble's an anomaly. You can't consider that true. But they were horrible. 
but they were horrible. It did, okay, look at those two weeks in the bubble. Their de facto somewhat play-in attempt. And the way he played last year in the bubble. Like, granted, yeah, it wasn't the playoffs, but that was as close to a playoff feel as he's ever played in, and he proved himself. But you're playing – I mean, it's an anomaly. That's the whole point. You're not playing under the same conditions. Like, I get the point that you're making, and you can give some validity to that being kind of the moment of them showing what team they could be. But it's not the same thing. I just don't – they haven't done anything for me to sit there and look at them compared to four or five other teams we could talk about that have had success in the playoffs that have pedigree athletes that show up in big moments and have routinely done it year after year. Phoenix doesn't have that. That's all I'm saying. Suns, final six games of the regular season. Lakers, Warriors, Trailblazers, Spurs, Spurs. So the last five games could be a precursor to who they play in the playoffs. Obviously, we're still dealing with seeding at the lower half of the Western Conference bracket. But they run through that, that gambit right there. I doubt LeBron plays tonight, right? Like, that's not right. going to happen. Right. Um, Warriors, Trailblazers, Dame is still getting – Dame's had some – some in and out as of late, so he's still putting on shows. He's coming back to his playoff form. I look at this as opportunity. I'm not saying the Suns aren't going to the Western Conference Finals. They're not going to get out of the second round. I'm saying this, what they've put together in the last 66 or 60, 70 games, it's a 66-game season, so 70 games, um, shows that they should be respected. It is not a situation in which you can say, oh, they should not be where they are. They're a good team, far from a great team, not expected to really disrupt what we think of the West. I think we got to give respect to the reason why they turned it around. It ain't Chris Paul. It ain't even Monty Williams. It's some fire-ass black jerseys, bro. That Valley of the Sun jersey, <laughs> when they dropped that, I'm not, even a, I'm not even a Suns fan. I love going to Scottsdale. The desert's always great to me. I go out there once, twice a year. But when they dropped that jersey, that was the one when I was like, you know what? I mess with the Suns because I could rock that jersey, that jersey five. And so when they changed that look, that set a tempo for this team. I can't argue that, man. Sometimes a fly jersey is all you need to turn it around. I won't buy the jersey because you know my whole belief that no grown man should wear another man's name on his back. So I will only buy a T-shirt or – and I'm not a fan enough to, like, get the jersey with my name on it. Mm-hmm. Uh but if I, bro, when that jersey dropped last summer, and I, we had this conversation offline, I love the Knicks black jerseys too. Like those two, when they dropped, I knew both these teams were going to be legit this year. That's the minute I respected the New York Knicks and the Phoenix Suns when those mm-hmm. black jerseys dropped last offseason. <laughs> yeah, it's, you're right, man. But we got to go back to this whole not wearing another man's name on your back. I get Never. what you're saying, but unless it's, I think. Unless it's iconic, like. I will wear a Sean Kemp Seattle Supersonics. Okay? Well, that was my whole a point. Jordan, I, be yes. like, I think I think you're allowed to wear athletes who were, you know, from your childhood. Like, you can wear throwbacks. You can wear throwbacks to, like, guys that you admired when you were a kid. But, yeah, I think I'd look at you a little weird if you went out tomorrow and got an Anthony Edwards jersey, for example. I'd be like, all right, dude, you're a little, you're a little too grown for that. Or if I was wearing a Chris Paul, right? Like, he's a future Hall right. of Famer, perennial all-star, but we're, like, the same age. Right. Why am I wearing his jersey? Right. So that is why I say you cannot wear another grown man's. Now, there are, like you said, parameters, right? A Charles Barkley Suns jersey would rock it. Dirk Nowitzki jersey. I used to rock. I was a big Dirk fan when I was in college. And then when I lived in Dallas, I went and saw him play. So, like, 
that's probably the last NBA player's jersey I would wear. Anybody playing like LeBron James, I will never wear a LeBron right. James jersey. And it's just, I, I'm not walking around with another man's on my, name on my back, bro. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Well, the only reason I'm defending it so hard is I've been on a hunt for like a, a good quality Darius Miles Clippers jersey for like the last three years, and I can never find one. But when I get it, I'm rocking it. Yeah, I got a spot here. Me. Let me check my, uh, I mean, Darius Miles, once again, that's early 2000s. Right. And, you know, you got him, you got Q, Lamar was on that team. Elton Brand was also on that team. So, although they, they were they were a bad team. You said a little yeah. candy, really? One of the no, worst of one overall picks Corey, ever. I said Corey Maggetti. Oh, but I thought you said Michael Olawin. Nah. We was about to end. This is going to be our shortest episode ever. You Corey said Michael Olawin, Candy Boy. No, nah, Corey Maggetti's from Fenwick. So we, he, that's Illinois. We used to see him play like in the state finals and stuff like that. If I'm not mistaken, I think him and, uh, um, man, why am I blinking on his name? Iguodala. I think they played each other in one of the state, like, not the title game, but the semifinal or quarterfinal game that year because they were the same age in Illinois. One was Springfield, one was up by Chicago. So I got a spot, and I'm going to name drop them. Uh, just because they were super nice, I went in there. I bought a shirt from there. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's here. It's called Round 2 Vintage NYC. You can look them up, up on the gram. They got, they got the tees, they got the jerseys. Um, check them out because I mean, is, they might have that one you're looking for. Is that for. Sean, Sean Witherspoon's thing? The one, like, he started out in L.A. and it's, that, That's his story, right? I don't know. I think it is. Maybe I'm wrong. I get those names mixed up a lot. But if, if it's who I'm thinking of, that's the guy who did those, like, really dope Nike Air Maxes a couple of years ago for Air Max Day. And I think they only did, like, you know, a couple of thousand pairs or something like that. They're a big deal. But, yeah, he, he's got one out here on Melrose, too. Yeah, okay. We'll check them out. But back to what I was saying, if you would have said Michael Olin with candy, bro, I would have disrespected and told everybody no longer listen to a word <laughs> that comes out of your mouth. I remember that draft. Ah, uh, was it 98? I think it was 98. I just remember the hype going into that draft. And they were like, who is this guy? He plays at Pacific University. Uh, he's Everyone's talking about him. He's a candy man. All this Michael Olin with candy. He was horrible. He was. That's, I felt the same way about him and Bargnani when everybody was hyping them up. I think everybody felt the same way about um, Darko, too, when the Pistons drafted him. I think a lot of people are like, you had a shot at Melo. Why? It was a 99 draft. That's what it was. And, yes, you're right, because the situation – that Darko was not going to be respected in that draft at all. Mm-mm. There but was, that was no Larry possible. Brown being Larry Brown. I blame Larry Brown for that. I feel like he's like, oh, I want a defender. I don't need another scorer who's not going to pass the ball. I need a team player guy. Larry Brown, man. So I look at Larry Brown totally different now. Um, I mean, granted, Larry Brown has always been one of those coaches that was more about him. And Mm -hmm. he wanted everyone to do exactly what he wanted. And certain players would agree with it, right? Because they wanted to win, whether it was Chauncey Billups, Rasheed Wallace, Ben Wallace. Other players thought they had better chances to win. And I'm not saying they're wrong, but, like, it, he was so rigid he wouldn't listen. And mm-hmm. I bring this up because I watched um, a kid from Coney Island. I watched that a couple of days ago. And so if you don't know, it was a 2019 documentary released in 2020 um, about Stephen Marbury. And, of course, I didn't watch it in 2020 because a lot of shit was going on. But I watched it the other day. And there was so much about it that, A, it reminded me how great Stephon Marbury was at Georgia Tech. 
mm-hmm. when he was busting everybody in the ACC, and I used to watch him in the ACC tournament that one season. Um, but then it also reminded me of his his meltdown that he had when he was playing with the Knicks and Larry Brown was a coach. Yeah. And you saw like how quickly Larry went at Stefan in the it on TV, like in the media. And it's just so funny because like no coach would do that now. And you see that that did not work out well for Larry Brown. A hundred percent. I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll get back to the Stefan part, but I always like think about the moment with Iverson. And I think about that practice rant that we talk about all the time. And somebody tweeted this the other day and I retweeted it. And I was like, we don't talk about it enough. Like we joke about that Iverson moment so much, but we forget like he was dealing with like a real loss. Like one of his best friends had just been killed and everybody's sitting there grilling him about a game that, you know, in the spectrum of his life doesn't have the same kind of significance of that. But again, that's a Larry Brown moment. He could have, completely shut that down he could have had his back and he never did that for his guys I really feel like other than Chauncey because to your point if you didn't buy into his system and do things exactly the way he would do them it is almost like he kind of pitted it you know everybody against you and made you look like the bad guy and he 100% did that with Mulberry and I mean I think we all feel the same way like it's great that he had another kind of career in China and was able to prolong something that maybe he wouldn't have been able to do in the states. But again, Larry Brown, I feel like if he would have been a lot more supportive, if he could have been more open-minded as a coach, he might have got a little bit more out of some of these guys and they wouldn't have been in the situations they were in. And it's interesting you brought up like um, AI was going through the loss of his friend because Marbury was going through, especially towards the end of that Knicks uh, era here, he was going through the loss of his father. Yeah. And his father was so instrumental in his life and so close. I mean, they had a big family, right? Like seven kids, mom and dad. So when you come from a big family, especially like that, especially from where they grew up in Coney Island, like all you have is family. So you learn to love and lean on one another because literally you have nothing else other than your family. Right. And so for, for Larry to kind of be as rigid as he was, um, you question his ability. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer, so you can't question that talent, but you question... Right. You know, was was it a situation in which he could have had more than two titles and he could have had and he could have had like we could be talking about Larry like we talk about Phil or Phil, Pat, Pat Wiley. Right. Yeah, 100%. yeah. Like and instead we will never talk about him like that. It'll always be great coach, such a jerk to play for. Right. Right. He was an amazing X's and O's basketball coach. He understood the purity of the game. He knew how to make the ball move and move in the right direction, the right flow and pace. But it just, you know, like there's some coaches in the NFL, they call them the quarterback whispers. If he would have been able to do that with his point guards, like who knows what he could have got out of them. I think that's the most shameful part is he couldn't connect with people because he was so stubborn in his own way. It's just, it's unfortunate. And it's like, I think a lot of times we're conditioned to always blame the athletes, always make them the ego-driven person. Well, because you know, the, the coach is the powerful figure, right? Like exactly. He's the, he's the figure where you give credence to, and mm-hmm. the player isn't. Right. Yeah. And I think we just too many times, like, we're short-sighted and just like, well, that person's being an asshole. Like, no, actually, their coach put them in a terrible position. Just like we deal with our employers, I'm sure, every now and then, where... Hey, how about you know, this? We, you, you, what you just said is literally what every high school basketball player says in the country. Yo, that coach wouldn't give me the ball. That coach wouldn't play me. That's why I didn't go right. D1. That's right. why I don't have scholarship offers. 
it was the coach. There was this one meme, or it's a gif, actually, hell, it's a video. And these little kids are, like, playing peewee football. And the kids are like, this isn't your fault. It's the coaches. This isn't your fault. And I, I wish I could find that video and save it because that is so true. When things go bad, people don't blame the coach until the coach is already halfway out the door. Right. Sometimes the coach messes up in season one and two. Like Matt Rule has been messing up for my Panthers in two seasons, bringing you back to what I said last week. But I digress. I step away because it's a different week. We talk about Marbury here. Uh, the coach can't be a huge problem. Um, you know what I did not know and the documentary. So there were good things about it. There were bad things, just like anything else, right? Clearly, mm -hmm. he produced it. He sanctioned it, so he wanted it to say what he wanted to get across. Um, I didn't know that his family was so dominant at basketball. Like, mm -hmm. seven siblings, he's like, five boys. Well, I was just he's say, one I of five. I haven't seen it yet, but I knew he was, like, the youngest out of a big family. No, no. He's got he's a not? younger brother. No, he's oh, got a younger he was brother. The youngest. He's one of the younger ones, though, right? Didn't he have yeah. a couple? Yeah. yeah. Right. So he had three older brothers. Eric went to Georgia. Donald Mulberry played at Texas A&M. The one they called Juju had a scholarship to Tennessee, but the grades didn't quite get there. So he ended up playing at St. Francis. Steph, we know. And then the younger brother, uh, Zach Mulberry, first name real Moses, but they call him Zach. He went to Rhode Island. So like as much as we talk about like the Ball family um, mm -hmm. and the Holiday family, right? Holiday family put three boys in the NBA. Mm -hmm. For the Mulberry family to have like five, hella good basketball players all coming out of Coney Island balling at Lincoln. Uh, the father isn't here right now, but the respect you got to give to him and his wife to, to raise their children to be great basketball players is something. Right. Special. I mean, Stephon Mulberry, Iverson will probably always be hands down my favorite basketball player, but Mulberry was a very second, a very close second. And my aunt and uncle who lived in Carmel, the reason I moved down there at one point, they lived in Minneapolis for a few years. And my uncle took me to a game, um, Marbury's rookie season, and he was amazing to watch. Like, him with the Timberwolves was just way different. Like, I know he did his thing in Jersey, obviously Phoenix as well, had that little stint with the Knicks. But, I mean, him and KG in Minnesota was amazing. So they're playing the Hornets. I remember they're down by, like, 20. Got to shit on my Hornets, right? Quarter. You got to <laughs> shit on my Hornets, of course. It was definitely against the Hornets. I remember that. And I remember they were down by, like, 20 points and just thinking, like, you know, this is still a young team. Like, I'm sure they have nights like this. And then Mulberry just took over. Just went crazy. It was just making plays for him. KG Gugliotta was there. Just unbelievable the way he dictated the whole flow of the game and where everybody was at all times. And then the final play of the game, I just remember, like, took the ball hard right in the lane. The guy kind of stepped up and stopped him. And you thought, like, he's screwed. He's six foot one, six two, or something like that. And he just kind of like flips his shoulder over and kind of flips it over his shoulder, over his back, off the glass, goes in. They win the game. And I, I just, I'll never forget that moment. I remember buying a six two life size Marbury poster after that, hanging it up in my room. The and one shorts, man, like everything about him. And it's a shame that. Spike didn't give him a little bit more love for he got game two because like yo Ray they Allen, talked about that in the documentary I can't How, wait like, to watch that part because Ray Allen like really was the one who got the most out of that but that's Mulberry like everybody knew that was Mulberry before anybody even said it was Mulberry we knew who it, was it was entire Stefan's life right like right. everything about it and it's so you, you you obviously talked about Iverson your connection to him uh Stefan Ray like I, I can't help it, but every time when these names come up, just pull up the 96 NBA draft. 
just pull it up. Sit back and say, you know what? Other than that 84 draft, I think with Jordan Ewing, mm-hmm. this nah, is the group. They weren't together. No, 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 no Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Really, yeah, exactly. Lajuan and Jordan. Because um, Ewing won it the next year at Georgia. Yep, yep, yep. But other than that draft, the 96 draft is the greatest one in NBA history. Right. Agreed. I think it's 84, 96, 03. Nothing else comes close. Not at all. At all. No. Um, so, you, like, you mentioned, and it was so, just so many things. Once again, as I'm watching this documentary, it's, like, reminding me of things that I've forgotten, things that I didn't know, things that just my youth. And so the, the Ray Allen, like, that was Stefan Marbury's. Spike literally stole his whole life mm-hmm. and made it in the video. Um, the one thing that I had issues with in the documentary was they showed, because remember, this was like peak world star hip-hop era when mm-hmm. Steph was having like those video meltdowns. The Vaseline moment. Yeah, the Vaseline moment, crying on camera, playing like gospel music. Like those, those were moments in which I needed him to explain what was going through his mind then. Mm-hmm. And so the whole documentary, it's literally his family talking. His brother, his mother, his sisters. Then they go to China, and then he comes in, he starts talking. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I need to know what you were thinking back then. Um, but then they, they obviously end it with him winning the titles in China. He's got mm-hmm. a statue in China. He's got a Marbury Museum in China. That's awesome. And so it was, it was really good because he did deal with a lot of personal demons, right? Like the loss of his father, the city of New York turning against him, the struggles uh, they even talked about the Kevin Garnett situation, how KD got that, that $120 million deal. And mm-hmm. then literally the next year, the CBA changed. And Minneapolis couldn't pay Marbury that kind of money. Mm-hmm. So then Marbury felt as if that was a slight, like, hey, you don't respect me and like me like you like KG. When in essence, they couldn't give you any more money. And also, I didn't know that KG and Marbury were homeboys from high school basketball. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, KG and them, they had, they used to spend so much time on the phone. I mean, I remember reading like a big Sports Illustrated article, like, I think it was Sports Illustrated, the one where they're like wearing uh, a bunch of snow stuff and like shoveling snow yeah, off. Of, like, yeah, bat. yeah. I'm pretty sure it was in that one. And they were talking about, yeah, when KG was at Farragut in Chicago, they used to get on the phone for like two hours a week. And they were, you know, that's why they were so hyped that they're going to be playing together. I think that's why KG fundamentally was like very hurt when he bounced on him. Cause like, dude, it only felt like five minutes watching those two play together, but they were the future of the league, man. Do you remember like all the shit they used to do with ESPN, the magazine? They're the ones that even predicted the nude issue that, that spot that they did for ESPN, the magazine where they're like all nude, tastefully done, but all nude. Like that was, they were just so ahead of it. it. They were never the same when they weren't together. And obviously KG went on and had his success doing what he needed to. But, and I always feel like that's one of those things that it's a shame they didn't get seven, 10 years to play together. I think they would have got a ring for sure. That was, and oh, you know, we go old man now, NBA, 90s basketball. So glad I got to watch it. So glad right. I got to grow up and really watch the end of Jordan, the rise of Kobe, the beginning of LeBron. Mm-hmm. Because that era was the greatest basketball I ever played. It was. And so watching a young KG and a young Mar Starberry, um, that's what made me watch Minnesota, right? Like I couldn't tell you three players on that team before they before they linked up. Right. 
right. then then it was okay you know this is the best player um because it was kg and tim duncan right who's gonna be the better power for both great players mm-hmm. both going to the whole thing together but it was a situation in which you you knew you were watching something good something you couldn't turn away from i love the nba but i don't really need to watch all three quarters now i don't right right but with those guys you had to watch it so that was fun and i definitely recommend watching that that was just something i was just flipping through it popped up i watched that and then i watched white boy rick it was a documentary kind of night and white boy rick was about a 17 year old who was selling yeah, drugs i've seen the movie before yeah i don't know if i've seen the documentary but they made a movie about it i think and i watched that was it matthew mcconaughey in it or something like that Nah, this was like legitimate white boy rick was in prison no, I know you're talking about the doc. I'm talking about that movie they made about oh, I had no clue like, what the I movie think, Yeah, I think they made a movie about him, like, 2018. Um, I'll have to see if I can find that. And I think Matthew McConaughey was in it. And it was a good movie. It was, yeah, so I'd be interested to see the documentary. Speaking it's of documentaries, yeah, I want to see yeah. the Summer of Sam one. Yeah, I don't get down with scary shit. I don't, it's not about I don't scary watch scary shit, movies. But, I don't do murders. You, I, don't do, have you I hate seen, Halloween, all that stuff. Have you yeah. seen Spike Lee's version of Summer of Sam, the movie? No, I don't that's do scary shit, bro. It's not scary. What's scary about it? Yeah, I, I'm not going to find out because I'm not going to watch it. It's not scary. I don't do haunted houses. <laughs> yo, I told her, like, everyone would be like, yo, let's go to a haunted house. I'm good. I, I don't mess with it. Because, like, this, this if I game, react man. a certain this way. This is a scary movie. Yeah, this, no. is, this is a real-life story about a guy who was in New York City, serial killer. Like, it's not a scary movie. Like, it's no different. And you expect than me to watch it now? That it's I live no here in this crazy it's, ass city. Hell no. So is that that's how you feel about Titanic? You know that the boat's gonna hit something and people are gonna die, so you get shook and you don't watch it. Actually, I don't think I've ever seen Titanic. <laughs> I don't do movies. We've had this conversation before. <laughs> I'm not a movie guy. That's why I do these documentaries. Uh, it's an hour and a half. It's something like factual, somewhat, depending on who's producing the doc. And I go from there. But yeah, I don't do movies. Um <laughs> damn, that thing is this thing's going longer than we thought. All right, rapid fire time. Because we actually had some great stuff, but we skipped over most of our shit. Uh, you see, speaking of New York City, you see that story about this kid who spent like twenty six hundred dollars in popsicles. I did. I don't. Even, I have no words. Please tell me how you feel about it. All right. So Noah Bryant, he lives in Brooklyn. He bought fifty one cases, nine hundred and eighteen SpongeBob popsicles off of his mom's Amazon account. <laughs> I mean, and, and so when you. At first, I had I felt some time away, right? And then I read about it. And I get to that in a minute, but then I read about it. And so, like, the mother is a single mother. She's going back to school to get her master's. And then, you know, like, I'll cancel shit on Amazon and send it back anytime, right? Like, I'll buy something and then literally cancel it the next day before it ships or, like, an hour later. Mm-hmm. So Amazon wouldn't take the popsicles back. They said, nope, you bought them, you got to keep them. So 2600 the family didn't really have the money. So a GoFundMe was set up. They got the money back within a couple of hours. And they even have like leftover money, which they're going to use to help care for Noah uh, because he, he's on the autism spectrum. So like, it's a happy ending in that regard. But when I first read it, now I, I might get drugged for this. So Lord, forgive me. When I first read it, before I knew the backstory about the mother struggling, before I knew the backstory uh, 2600 is a, bought a lot of money to come up with like that. Yes. So it's not even struggling. Yeah. Just It's a lot of money, right? Before yeah. I knew that, before I knew about Noah being on the autism spectrum, I just read the headline. And I was like, you don't check your Amazon account? <laughs> oh, bro, the Amazon account get checked. That would have got canceled with the quickness. And then B, I thought, if this would have happened in the late 80s, early 90s in Greensboro, North Carolina, 
how would this have gone down with my family? Needless to say, my mother would not have taken pictures of me posing on the popsicles and shit of her friends. Right, right. Instead, she would have called her friends with me crying in the background. Let me tell you what my dumbass son Jason just did. You're this boy that ran up $2,600 on my credit. Boy, shut up. I'm crying in the background. Boy, shut up. Shut up. Before I give you something to cry about. Wait till your father get home. That would have been how the conversation would have gone in North Carolina circa 1989. I mean, I kind of had a situation like that. Not 89, I'd say close to like 96. I think I was like 14 years old. And we were about to go on vacation. And my mom just had like a stack of bills sitting in an envelope on the counter. And I think it was like maybe like $500 for vacation. And I took it. And like, I had no intention to spend it and I wasn't going to do anything stupid with it. I just wanted to flex in front of my friends and be like, look, I've never seen this much cash. I got $500 on me. This is pre-cell phone. So my mom couldn't like text me and be like, do you have the money? She's like basically freaking out. Think she lost it at some point when I got home. Man, when I got home, she sent me straight. Happy Mother's Day, mom. Yeah, happy Mother's Day. We appreciate the love and support you've given all of us and allowing us to make it this far in life because we did some really dumb shit when we were children. We really uh, did. So, like, I'm so happy that it ended well, and obviously it's a great opportunity to help his family out. But when I saw that headline and, you know, he's sitting there eating the popsicle standing on the box, I was like, this would have, whatever viral was in 1989, it would have gone viral not because I was smiling eating the popsicle. It would have gone yeah, viral because yeah, I couldn't sit down and I was <laughs> crying. Um, but that popped up. I thought that was interesting. Um, Elon Musk last night, SNL, uh, Dogecoin. He shot the hell out of that. A couple of jokes, but it looks like it's coming back. Ethereum. I told you the last time we taped, Ethereum was at $2,600. And I said, yeah, B, if I gave you three racks right now, would you buy it? And do you remember what you said? I don't. You said, uh, I think there's something there, but I can think of better ways to invest $3,000. Yeah. If I would have hypothetically true. given you $3,000 last week. So it's $2,700. At this time, it is $3,900. You would have made $1,200 in seven days. What yeah, other investment I mean were you going to do in last week on that one? Well, I mean, I, I do invest in like different stocks and different crypto and there's other ones that trend just as well. I mean, it's a, I'm not going to go into detail because I don't know. It's a bubble. Know. It's speculative. It, we know that. It's not, it's not just that. It's just more so like the things that get the most attention on social media, what happens is so many people trade on it that it's ceiling tends to not be as high as some other ones that aren't as discussed. And I think it's just like, if you can kind of play within the other areas that not everybody's talking about, you can find just as good, if not way better returns on things. I'm not saying it's a bad investment. I'm just saying, look, I should have said, yes, I'll take your 3000 invest in it. You're not wrong there. I'm just saying there's still a lot of other good investments out there. That's all. And I just implore people to do their research, really look into things. Cause right now everybody's just going off the word of influencers or Elon Musk, et cetera. And that's the only principle I'm trying to get across. To the moon, baby. To the moon. Uh, before we get up out of here, <laughs> DK Metcalf ran with real sprinters today. So DK Metcalf is a beast in the beast. National Football League. Um, he ran down Buda Baker off of that for Vinegar pick six. So he's 6'4", 230 pounds. He said, I'm going to try to run with actual world-class sprinters. And this was a USA track and field event. Ran it today. 
he ran a he ran a hundred meter dash in ten point three seven. He of the nine people in his heat, he finished like eighth. So that lets you know a the speed in which they go. But do you have more respect for him because he was willing to put it out there and test it? I I've always had respect for him. I, honestly, I was one of well, that's because he biggest, beat your ass though. Like, well, he, not he only swore. that, but I was one of the biggest advocates during the draft that like there was probably two or three guys taken before him. His athleticism and his strength alone was just ungodly. Never seen anything like that really from that position. Dude, it's crazy. It's going to be really interesting to see where his ceiling is because how he played last year, I felt like he could get there eventually, but not year two. That's scary, dude. Because people don't realize like a lot of these like blue chip receivers, they get drafted in the first round. Most of them have like been the man since seventh, eighth grade. Like that kind of situation, that trajectory is expected. With DK, he was just more of like a freak athlete that was still kind of trying to figure out how to run routes, like how to do a lot of things that a receiver needs to do. People think it's just being fast, strong, and being able to catch up football. There's so much more to that. And his technique last year, like he was burning DB1s on some of the best teams. Like it, he amazes me. That's all. In case you're wondering, the automatic qualifier for the Olympic trials they say it's like a 10.2 or better USA track and field listed as a 10.05. He ran a 10.37. So he's off by like almost half a second, but still ridiculously fast. Um, that takes it off for this episode. As always, thank y'all for joining us. Brandon, what's the name of the show again? What you heard. Y'all know what it is. We'll see y'all again next time. Peace. Mm-hmm.